Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. This is John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Uh, And just to set the scene, immediately prior to this, you can see where it says the next day, immediately prior to this has been the meal where uh, Jesus is dining at Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus's house, and Mary has anointed Jesus's feet with a costly perfume. Uh, And some of the, the tension in the room is from Jesus's own disciples who don't know how to reconcile this extravagant act of love and devotion. And the ideas about who Jesus is are kind of splitting the seas almost. All through the book of John, we have this divide between people that are accepting and following Jesus and people that are just not so sure what he's all about. This is all in the background of what we're going to see here in this passage. It's John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he had called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The word of God for the people of God. So on most weeks, I would relish the opportunity to teach from a text like this. For most of you, it's probably a very familiar story. If you spent any amount of time within the church, this is something that is commonly talked about, specifically around Palm Sunday. It's, it's so familiar, but it sets the table for us to extract some new information from this passage, which I'll be honest, is something that I love to do. Take a well-known passage and then get underneath of the surface by looking back in its first century Jewish context to see what we might be able to learn uh, from an old passage for the very first time. Inevitably, there is stuff that is lost on modern readers as we are going back to explore a first century Jewish culture, which is very dissimilar from our own. But beyond uh, exploring the newness of the text or hoping to recover some of the newness, what makes this story so fun to teach is the fact that it's retold in all four Gospels, just by way of review, the four Gospels are Matthew, Matthew, Mark, 
Luke and John, beautiful. When this happens, when one event from the life of Jesus is told in all four Gospels, you can typically expect some very delicious, as Laura would say, delicious tensions to emerge between the various authors' recollection of a single event in Jesus' life. And this story is no exception. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, otherwise known as the Synoptic Gospels, they all retell a pretty similar version of this story what most scholars would refer to as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem prior to his death. Their version starts with Jesus instructing two of his disciples to go into a nearby town where they will find a donkey that's tied up. When they do, they are to untie the donkey and bring it to Jesus. And if anyone stops them along the way, they are simply to say, the Lord has need of it and will bring it back immediately. Once the donkey is brought to Jesus, he hops on and he rides into town to much fanfare and acclaim. And I know I've told you this 50,000 times, but I'll go ahead and say it again. When Laura and I were growing up, we would go to Miss Pat's Sunday school class, and she had this life-size carpet-covered wooden donkey on wheels. And every (laughs) Palm Sunday, we would enact this sort of... uh, moment of Jesus' life where he would be wheeled into uh, the gates of Jerusalem prior to his death. That was always a great time, and one of the lucky kids would always get to sit atop of the wooden... One of the lucky boy. One of the lucky lucky boy kids. It was a patriarchal society uh, in our Sunday school class back in the day where, you know, only certain roles were reserved for the men. Uh, Last week, if you'll remember, we talked very briefly about the ever-stimulating but often neglected topic of source criticism in the Gospels. What this topic encompasses is the scholarly hypotheses on how Matthew, Mark, and Luke were formed. Because these books are so similar, because they're meant to be read together, which is how we um, have arrived at the synoptic Gospels, they're meant to be read together or looked at together, scholars have postulated which Gospel was written first and how or if the others used it in preparation for their accounts. So what we have here is this two-source theory which postulates that Mark is the first gospel to be written. Matthew and Luke both use Mark. And because there's about 200 to 250 verses of shared material between Matthew and Luke, scholars then go on to say they must be using another source, which they have named Q. Q is the initial for the German word quell, which means source. This is where this comes from. This is the two-source theory. And in the passage that we're looking at here, if you really wanted to nerd out, and I was trying to avoid this, but if you really wanted to, you could read these stories side by side of the triumphal entry of Jesus going into Jerusalem, and you might be able to to make a case for what's called Markan priority. The fact that Mark is probably the first book that's written because Mark's version is so terse. It just outlines the 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 very minimum of what Jesus has been about. And then you can see how Matthew expands on that a bit and Luke expands on that in notably different ways. Meanwhile, if we are studying the Gospel of John, scholars have also noted that John is just totally bizarre. The way that John tells stories when they are shared between Gospels, it's, it's completely distinct, and we see that happening here in the story of the triumphal entry. John is not going back to Mark. There's lots of things in John's story 
that are not included that you would find in Mark and Matthew and Luke, which scholars would say it means that he's looking back at a different tradition. John's story is written for different purposes. So the story of the triumphal entry, it's, it's no different here, and we see John doing his own weird thing. When compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John provides even a smaller version of the story than Mark does. He's got none of this sending two disciples out to find the donkey business. We only have Jesus procuring his own donkey in this particular passage. Another notable difference between these stories as they lie is in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, it sets the table for him to overturn tables. When he goes into Jerusalem, this is when he begins to be enraged by what's happening in the temple courts the religious leaders collecting money more than is due to them for sacrifices, so that when people are going to Passover, they're overspending for sacrifices, and Jesus goes into the temple, overturns the tables, and says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves, or a den of brigands, if you will. In many ways, the temple cleansing for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is where the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem is heading, it's, it's this double demonstration uh, that is going towards his ultimate crucifixion and resurrection. I will say uh, this as well, we're thinking about this text. One scholar named J. Dominic Crossan says, it's crucially important to be quite clear that this double demonstration, Jesus going into Jerusalem and Jesus overturning the tables it was not against Judaism as such, not against Jerusalem as such, not against the temple as such, and not against the high priesthood as such. It was instead a protest from the legal and prophetic heart of Judaism against Jewish religious cooperation with Roman imperial control. And as I'm preparing and thinking about some of these things, if there's not a sermon to be found there, specifically, I'm gonna name some names, about American evangelicalism being in bed with politicians, then I'm not much of a preacher and we aren't much for watching the news. But I'm gonna leave that off to the side for right now. Instead, what I would like us to focus on is how the story differs in the Gospel of John. We have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they are all looking at this triumphal entry. Jesus is going into Jerusalem, setting the stage for his, his murder at the hands of the Roman Empire. All of the different Gospels have this story, but for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it culminates in the cleansing of the temple. But for John, this is something that has been placed in the beginning of his Gospel. This is not where the story is going in the Gospel of John. Jesus does not enter into Jerusalem to then cleanse the temple like he does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Instead, uh, what's placed at, the, at the, the very centermost point of this story in the book of John is the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Lazarus, Jesus' good friend, passed away a couple chapters earlier. When he hears about this, he, he delays the moment when he would go and raise Lazarus from the dead. Little known fact and super cool factoid, this story only occurs in the Gospel of John. 
When we think about it as well, the, the three verses leading up to John's version of Jesus going into Jerusalem, uh, it makes this clear. The author writes, when the great crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but they also came to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest, it says, planned to put Lazarus to death since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and believing in Jesus. Later in the story that we read this evening, the crowds had been uh, with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. They continued to testify. In other words, the people that are waving the palm branches, the people that are shouting Hosanna, those are the people that know what Jesus has done for his dear friend Lazarus. And you can step back and you can see all the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the Gospel of John. And yes, Laura, you can indeed celebrate them as utterly delicious. Beyond the story's presentation and the differences between the two, I'll also throw this into the mix as well. There's an issue uh, that, that scholars and maybe some of us might want to explore, namely, did it happen this way? Did Jesus enter into Jerusalem in the way that's presented in the Bible? There's just a little bit of context that we should think about here. The Passover time was a time when people would go to the holy city. There was a lot of people here. One first century Jewish scholar named Josephus even reckons that there was 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at this time. If I was on top of my game, I should have likened that to an American city, but I'm not on top of my game. You'll have to Google that, and then somebody can report back and just say, Minneapolis, at any point in the rest of this talk. Just go for it. Certainly, there were not 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at this time, but it is the case that the numbers began to swell because this is one of the three pilgrimage feasts in Jewish culture when typically people would go to Jerusalem to observe the festival that's happening here. As a result, the entry would certainly have been loud. It certainly would have been joyous and celebratory. One scholar says that crowds already present loudly welcomed many incoming pilgrims is virtually certain. When I read that line, I thought immediately of a Young Life banquet. I don't know if anyone has had the esteemed privilege of going to a Young Life banquet, but what happens is when you get out of your car and you go into the building, wherever they're having it, they take all of the Young Life kids and line them up. And as you enter in, they just erupt in joyous praise for you. It's a ploy for them to get more money, but let's put that off to the side for a moment. And just imagine you're walking in, and this is, this is really weird, and I hate it. It's one of the reasons why I don't like going to Young Life banquets, because I know this is going to happen. But you're like walking through, and everyone is saying, yeah, all right, nice job, way to go, you're here, good job. And you're just like going down there, giving you high fives, it's totally weird. But this is how I imagine people showing up to Jerusalem at this time, because people are yelling and screaming, and it's joyous, momentous, Occasion, and if that's how it is, then what would differentiate Jesus riding side saddle on his donkey going into the town? And more importantly, if Jesus' entry was that of a king returning from war, if it was so noticeable, then why wouldn't Rome have taken care of him immediately? Chicago, Illinois. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Chicago, 2.7-ish. What's the actual number? 
2705. There we go. You all love Chicago. It is a beautiful city. Okay. <laughs> ne never mind. My bad. Don't go there. It's awful. Yes, it is, is very windy. I got, a, I got a romantic version of Chicago because I've always wanted to live in a place, this has nothing to do with the sermon, I've always wanted to live in a place where I could ride public transportation to work every day. And there's something about standing on the platform of the L waiting in like 10 degree weather with a wind chill that takes it down to like negative 40 and people are wearing like full facial masks and huge coats and I think, I wanna do that for a winter and then move back to Salisbury. Anyway, because of the, there's been previous uprisings as people have gone into the town at these big Jewish festivals that the Roman garrisons, the Roman troops were on watch. And if Jesus is going in to people saying, this is the guy, this is the king, this is the one, then why didn't they just go ahead and take care of him as, as this was happening? There should be some alarms going off as we read this as to us thinking, now what, what's happening here? In fact, one scholar, uh, E.P. Sanders, says the entry was probably deliberately managed by Jesus to symbolize the coming kingdom and his own role in it. I account for the fact that Jesus was not executed until after the demonstration against the temple by proposing that it was intentionally symbolic action that Jesus is performing and that Jesus would have regarded, uh, he was regarding himself to be king, albeit a humble one. And also, uh, he's performing this for the sake of the disciples, but that it did not attract large public attention. So E.P. Sanders is pushing back on what we're reading in the pages of scripture to paint a more historical uh, setting for this account. Now, more conservative scholars are, are a bit bristled by that, so they'll try to figure this out in different ways ways, namely um, that because there was so much fanfare, it may have been possible for Jesus to have received uh, palm branches waved and people saying this is the king and to it have gone unnoticed because really the Roman garrisons were more focused on the temple mount than they would have been at the entryways of the city. Now on most weeks, and I didn't time that, but it was stupid long, I apologize. On most weeks, these are the types of things that I would salivate over. The differences between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the historical underpinnings of this story, those are the things that we would spend our time discussing. But tonight, I'm gonna let all of that slide other than the 12 minutes or so that you've already received. Because a few days ago, a friend of mine posted something on Facebook, was it not 12 minutes, was it way longer? Okay, whatever. <laughs> keep, keep judging me and timing me, <laughs> whatever. We love you. Thank you. Uh, a, f a few days ago, a friend of mine uh, posed a query on Facebook saying, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? And my initial response to this was, it's a matter of semantics. I like to think that while we are teachy heavy here, that there's also a good bit of preachy, meaning the information that is conveyed leads to life change and application. I would love for that to be true. I think it's completely possible for us to teach and preach at the same time. And not only do I think it's possible, I think it is beneficial, but I do realize that sometimes in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of personal unrest, 
in the midst of hard moments in life, in the midst of grief and mourning and loneliness and loss, in the midst of a bad report from the doctor, in the midst of sheer confusion as to what to do with regard to your family, in the midst of all of that, we don't need to talk about gospel source criticism. In the midst of our exhaustion, when we come into this space, and I have a beautiful view of that up here because I get to look at all of your lovely faces from the moment when the first chord is strummed to the entire sermon that is preached. And I know the things that you are bringing into this space and how they weigh so heavily on your shoulders in the midst of our exhaustion and fear and sadness. We don't need slideshows with slick charts and fancy transitions, and we don't need scholarly explanations of what is historical and not. What we need is hope. And somewhat surprisingly, I would like to posit the view that we can look at the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus and receive some of the hope that we need to get through our everyday situations. The, the, the moments of feeling lost and confused, the moments when doubt invades our lives to a point of paralysis, the moments when we don't feel as though we should be the ones functioning in the situations that we have been placed in. I just have two points for us tonight after my 17-minute introduction, two points that I'm hopeful will lead us to a place where we can leave energized and renewed. First, I'd say that the story that we've read here it's about Jesus's kingship. In fact, it's about Jesus orchestrating a symbolic and calculated prophetic display that proclaims to the Passover pilgrims, whether it's 100,000 or 2.7 million, and whether they realized it or not, what he is proclaiming is their king is here, seated on a donkey and strolling into the city. As we might expect, this sign is enacted in a manner that's consistent with Old Testament prophecy. In fact, Zechariah 9 states, uh, states this. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here's the contrast. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. To get what the gospels are after in this passage, we have to realize that this is a radically countercultural sign demonstrating that King Jesus comes in peace in nonviolence. And this is unlike any king at the time, anything that people were expecting to take place, especially in his context. When we preached through this text in April, I read this quote from J. Dominic Crossan, who's a New Testament scholar. He writes, in the late 330s BCE, Alexander the Great lunged down the Levantine coast of the Eastern Mediterranean and after savage sieges, rode through the shattered gates of Tyre and Gaza on his famous war horse. And you will notice the explicit contrast between the peace donkey that Jesus is riding on and the war horse. Jesus, in other words, is a different type of ruler. 
He's a humble servant. He lays down his power. He exhibits his rule through a demonstration of self-sacrifice. He wins by losing. He defeats death by dying. In the very next passage in the book of John, it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. All of this should clue us in that Jesus is a huge weirdo in the first century Jewish culture, and many people were not ready for it at the moment when it was happening. The way that John structures his story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, it emphasizes another important feature about Israel's king, one that is not always true of worldly powers, and this, I believe, is valuable for us to consider. By placing the miracle of Lazarus dead set in the midst of this story as the centerpiece leading up to Jesus going into Jerusalem, John equates Jesus' kingship with his life-giving mission. In other words, Jesus, the King of Israel, is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He also comes to bring life to his people. In the midst of tragedy and personal unrest, in the midst of the hard moments of life, the grief and the mourning, the loneliness and the loss, the feelings where we are all alone, Jesus, the peaceful, nonviolent, self-sacrificial King, has come to give you life. Wherever you are and whatever it is that you're bringing with you into this space, the collective weight that you are wearing on your shoulders, may we find rest in the fact that King Jesus is here to give us life. Where our examples of worldly power, they seem intent on leading from a place of self-preservation and empire building, Jesus leads counter-culturally, radically, surprisingly. And Jesus, through his kingship, gives us life. May we rest in that. Second, uh, and this is a bit teachy, I will admit to you. In John, the true nature of Jesus' kingship is only fully known after his death and his resurrection. Everyone there, everyone waving the palm branches, everyone singing the hymns of praise as Jesus goes into the gates of Jerusalem, they do not realize fully what is happening. The Gospel of John describes the entry in this way. His disciples didn't understand these things, but when Jesus was glorified after his death and his resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. In other words, they're watching this happen before them. They're celebrating in the moment, but they're not quite understanding what Jesus is about. Understanding for them is progressive. It's ongoing. From a historical perspective, no one was waiting for their king to die. When he did, the revolution was over. The people's chants of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king, they would have been silenced as Jesus is put to death on the cross. It took time for the disciples to understand all that Jesus had said, all that he had taught, all that he had done, what it meant for him to come to give his life and what it would cost him. And I would like to suggest this evening, it's really no different for us today. For very different reasons, our understanding is also progressive. 
it's ongoing. And often the way that Jesus reigns is enacted, it defies our explanation and our expectation. Perhaps this is due to the type of teaching that we've received in the past. Perhaps this is due to some of the experiences that we have gone through. Or perhaps it's because we, like the disciples, need to see things through the lens of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. But for whatever reason, with no charts behind me, no historical critical remarks on this passage, no interesting facts on the passage at hand, for those of you who find yourself in the midst of the unexpected, the unfathomable, the heartbreaking, and the lonely, may we together be comforted by the truth that our Savior, our King still reigns. May we remember that whatever we face is not outside of his scope, not outside of his concern, it's not outside of his reach, even if we don't quite understand it. Now, I wanna be real clear about this. Notice what I did not say, and this might push against some of your, your theology. I did not say that whatever you are experiencing is part of some divine plan. I don't believe that. And quite honestly, I, I don't think that you should either. What I think is residing at the core of this encouragement to be gained is you're not alone. You never have been and you never will be. Within this community right now, I know that there's experiences that are testing our corporate resolve to this truth because it feels lonely where some of you are. It feels completely distinct for me to be rattling on about historical criticism at some points because of the things that you are having to shoulder. It feels as though death and brokenness, they're looming for you. Might I suggest, with the vantage point of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the forefront, May we too proclaim with the prophets, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. When the disciples fled after the death of Jesus, in their darkest moments, he appeared to them. May he do so for you too. I sent an early version of this sermon to Susie to see what she was thinking, and one of her comments was, right here, may Jesus appear to you. She said very simply, and I think this will be uh, well-received within the room, how? How are we to expect that? How are we to feel that? How are we to experience that? How are we to receive that? And while I could postulate about those moments of silent meditation and contemplation when the peace of Christ invades our very souls and allows us to rest in those moments, I know that for some of us, they are few and far between. The best I have for us in this moment is that we take seriously the call to be in the hands and feet of Jesus, that we take seriously the call to be the priesthood of the believers, that we take seriously the call to have eyes to see the hurt in the people around us, the community around us that needs to feel, that needs to experience, that needs to receive the love and inclusion that Jesus has to offer. I don't always think that these moments are experienced when you are alone. 
I think that also in order for that to be felt and to be received, that tangible moments of expression of love also need to be shared. So while we can say, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a, don- a donkey's colt, I would also postulate that while we wait for that to happen, may we feel the prayers of the community. May we feel and experience the acts of compassion. May we uh, hold on to the hope that's present here in the midst of your own life's difficulties. And in the midst of that, please know that you are loved, that you are not forgotten that you are not alone, that you never have been and never will be, and may you remember that Jesus is king, even if that is something that, that we don't understand in the moment, may we hold on to that truth, and may the community of the saints surround us and allow us to experience life and hope. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.